We will now come to the time of fellowship with our Lord. He is continuing to lead us through Psalm 119. We've been working our way through this this great psalm. As, As we've said already, this is an acrostic in the Hebrew, so it goes through the Hebrew alphabet. And we are now, I believe, on the letter Het. So uh, Psalm 119, 57 through 64 says, The Lord is my portion. I have promised to keep your words. I sought your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your word. I considered my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies. I hastened and did not delay to keep your commandments. The cords of the wicked have encircled me, but I have not forgotten your law. At midnight I shall rise to give thanks to you because of your righteous ordinances. I am a companion of all those who fear you and of those who keep your precepts. The earth is full of your loving kindnesses, of your loving kindness, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. Turn your attention now as the Lord is going to teach us his statutes. invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Zechariah, chapter 1, as well as turning your bulletin to the insert. Zechariah 1, second vision granted to Zechariah was verses 18 through 21. And this vision is in the context of, of the larger pro, uh, a scope of the, the visions. And last week we looked at the first vision, which was the vision of comfort. And this vision, as we'll see this morning, is a vision of vindication. And uh, um, this is God's Word. I invite you to stand together with me out of reverence and respect for the reading of the words of our Lord and King. Please stand. In other words, of our Lord... Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there were four horns. So I said to the angel who was speaking with me, what are these? And he answered me, these are the horns which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming uh, to do? And he said, these are the horns which have scattered Judah, so that no man lifts up his head. But these craftsmen have come to terrify them, to throw down the horns of the nations who have lifted up their horns against the land of Judah in order to scatter it. That's Father, reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege you've given us to now come and gaze upon another portion of your word. A portion of Lord that was inspired, it is inspired by your word or by your spirit, such that we know by application it was written for us at this very moment in our lives. And uh, Lord, we pray that you would, by your spirit, grant us grace to be illumined, to Lord, fellowship, to not be distracted, but to fellowship and to give us understanding that Lord, we would leave here responsive to your word, built up, encouraged. Lord, burdened accordingly. Bless the preaching of your word, O Lord. Grant his unction and power as we listen and study. Grant me grace to be uh, to preach with fidelity. Lord, we entrust this time to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. I will admit that when I graduated from seminary, I did not have my eschatological ducks all in a row. Um... I, I could articulate the, the major uh, positions. I could defend them. On-mill, pre-mill, historical pre-mill, the post-mill. I wasn't dispensational, I knew that. But um, I hadn't done enough study of Scripture to, in my mind, with integrity, say, this position is the right one. I didn't know. Again, I could articulate them and defend them and argue for them, but I didn't know which one was the biblical one. However, I was ordained, and the reason why I was ordained, because at that time, and even still uh, today, um, I would say I have the least amount of problems with this uh, position. They're not black and white. But that being said, there is um, a core set of beliefs that for me to be orthodox, I need to uh, profess. Some of those things are things like 
We, we believe that the end of the world is real. That Jesus Christ is coming again. That when He comes, He will judge the living and the dead. That those who have been made righteous by the blood of the Lamb will enter into the eternal state, the new heavens and the new earth, a physical, corporal existence where they will serve and glorify God, enjoying Him forever. And yet those who are wicked and still in their sins, they will be resurrected and cast into the lake of fire along with the devil and his demons. Now there are more that we could uh, profess. In fact, the passage before us this morning This vision, while not written about the second coming of Jesus Christ, we know that each of these visions are written about the Christ event. And I say it that way because in the Old Testament, many of the prophets didn't see that he, that, uh, they didn't see the two comings of Christ. They saw Christ as coming, the Messiah as coming. And so we might look at a mountain range and see two mountains that look right next to each other, but when you go up above, you might see they're they're separated by hundreds of miles. Likewise, from the perspective of the Old Testament, Zechariah saw Christ coming, and the last vision was about Christ and the age in which we live. Vision 2, vision 3, all of these visions relate to this time in which Christ came, in which we're living, and which will culminate with His second coming. And so while he's not talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ in this text, he is talking about the Christ event, which has implications with regards to the core belief of what you and I must profess when it comes to the end of this world. That being said, let's dive into it. Notice with me the four horns. Verse 18. Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there were four horns. Now, for us to understand this passage, at least a little bit more clarity, it's helpful for us to be on the same page historically, where God's people were living at this time, receiving this vision for the first time. What were, what were they, what had they just experienced? What was relevant in their thinking? And for that, let me go back. I'm going to give you a quick, swift run through it. Number one, before the world began, Ephesians 1 tells us that God set his love upon a people to redeem sinful people to himself. Now I start there because the last vision was all about the comfort that God gives His people in dark and difficult times. Brothers and sisters, that comfort begins with us knowing God loves us. And He he has deigned from the beginning of time to spend eternity with a forgiven people, which means your sin that you're struggling with right now and the sins that you will struggle with will not stop God from His purpose, which is to be with you for eternity, fellowshipping, co-reigning. That was the last vision. Well, because of that, in time, God approached a man by the name of Abraham and worked redeeming grace in this man's life. And He intended through Abraham to build this massive group of people, not a national race of people. Hear that. God did not purpose in Abraham to build a national race of people. That did happen. But God purposed in Abraham, according to scriptural teaching, to build a believing race of people. Listen to Galatians 3. Therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring Heirs according to His promise. If you are trusting Christ today, you are the people whom God has raised up in Abraham. Now God at that time deigned to express His redeeming purpose via a kingdom. So when God created the world, Genesis 1, He established it to be His kingdom. Genesis 1 and 2 are saturated with kingdom language. Well, when Adam fell, God's kingdom toppled on this earth to be re established, rebuilt, recreated in Jesus Christ. And that is why when Jesus Christ came to the earth, Matthew 4, we read, Jesus was going about all, about in all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. In fact, His first words, in His first formal words as the Messiah, once He was recognized as such by God, were these words, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, a millennium before this time, God organized his people, 
the generations of Abraham, this believing race, into a nation. Now, it was not God's plan. This is important. It was not God's plan to stay on this earth, to reign on this earth at that time forevermore through that nation. It wasn't. God's plan was to reign on a physical earth in Jesus Christ, ultimately the new heavens and the new earth, the promised land. So then why did he ordain this theocracy? It was to teach God's people in the old covenant the nature, the the mores, the culture of how to live as a kingdom because Jesus Christ was coming to establish the kingdom. Well, because of that, when God established the theocracy, He established it on conditional, on a conditional basis. Listen to Deuteronomy 4.25, the creation of the nation. God gave this warning through Moses to the people of God as they entered into the promised land. When you become the father of children, children's children, and have remained long in the land, and act corruptly and make an idol in the form of anything, and do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, as to provoke Him to anger... I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you shall surely perish quickly from the land where you are going over to the, uh, over the Jordan to possess it. You shall not live long on it, but shall be utterly destroyed. That's exactly what happened. God organized the nation formally under Saul in 1051 B.C. And God's people immediately were so wretched and sinful that by 931 they divided. They had a, a, a non-bloody civil war. They divided. Ten and a half tribes stayed north, calling themselves Israel. Two and a half tribes stayed south, calling themselves Judah. And each of these were theocracies. They were nations led by God. But the northern kingdom, they they dove into sin headlong, as you know. And so it didn't last long, a little more than 200 years. 722 B.C., God raised up the Assyrians to come as His tool to discipline the northern kingdom by, as the text says, utterly destroying them, wiping them off the face of the earth. The southern kingdom lasted a little bit longer because they had some good kings who called called God's people into faithfulness. And so they lasted longer. But all would come uh, to an end as God raised up the Babylonian nation to discipline His people in Judah three different times, 605, 597, and then ultimately 586, where God utterly destroyed the nation, wiping it off the face of, of the earth. At this time, there were other nations that took advantage of God's people. The Edomites. Remember Obadiah? How when in 586 God's people went into exile, what did the Edomites do? Now the Edomites are the generations from Esau. So they were brothers, they're cousins of God's people. But rather than having any kind of compassion or mercy, they rejoiced. Um, The text reads, they rejoiced, they, they joyed, they sang for joy, and then... Obadiah chapter 14, do not stand at the fork of the road to cut down their fugitives and do not imprison their survivors in the day of their distress. Obadiah is indicting the Edomites because when God's people fled south, where Petra is today, um, that's where the Edomites were. When they fled south to flee from the Babylonians, the Edomites killed them. They actually killed God's people and then those they didn't kill, they culled. Okay, and then they brought them back to Babylon where they would be killed or enslaved or brutally tortured and horribly treated. And then, during this time, the Persians, you know, in 539, the Persians conquered Babylon in a really bloodless war. They overtook Babylon. And in 539, Cyrus, you think maybe he's a friend of of grace because Isaiah references him by name. He says, go home, Jews. Here's some money. Here's all the holy utensils. Go home and rebuild in 538, right? And what do God's people do? They go home, and then that's the context of Haggai and Zechariah to this horrible situation. Um, And now the date's 520. But that being said, we think of Persia as, oh, man, they 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 were wonderful to God's people. Brothers and sisters, read the book of Esther. The book of Esther is written as God's people suffered under Persia. Persia was not a friend of grace to help God's people on the way. Cyrus may have been for a very brief moment. He died in what, 536 or uh, 526? I forgot the date. Um, but soon after him, 520, Darius is now reigning, and that's when God's people are trying to rebuild. So these four kingdoms were no friends of God's people. God raised them up 
It's very clear, Assyria, Babylon, they were tools in God's hand. But get this, God raised them up to discipline his people, but these nations went beyond and above and humiliating and attacking and hurting and harming and attacking God's people. And that's the context in which God's people live at this very moment in which this vision came to Zechariah. Notice with me then, again, the four horns. Then I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, you're never going to believe this, there were four horns. What's a horn? Karen, a Hebrew. The word literally can refer to horns. The horns of a ram or a goat or an oxen or a sheep, even elephant tusks are used by this name. It can also be used to in, in reference to anything made of an animal horn, like a trumpet or a flask of oil made out of, a trump, out of, out of an animal horn. Figuratively, the word came to mean authority and power and sovereignty. Because if you think about it, the only offensive weapon many animals have, like an ox, is its horn. And so the horn, they, God's people saw, man, the horn is the only offensive weapon. Their ability to exert their sovereignty, their authority, their power was in their horn. So the horn came to be used in reference to anything that exerts authority or power. So get this. When God built the altar burnt offerings, he put four horns on each corner of the altar to symbolize and to proclaim to his people what's going on here. I, God, have the authority and the power to forgive your sin. And that is why when God had the blood wiped on the four horns to forgive God's people, it was very symbolic that this sacrifice, ultimately Jesus Christ, will be effective. You can rejoice in God. Because God is the one who forgives. He has the power and the authority. That's the idea behind horn. Well, it's also used in, rest in, in reference to the individual. And so, for example, in Psalm 18, we read, The Lord is my shield and the horn, the strength of my salvation, my stronghold. Okay? Or Deuteronomy 33, 17, speaking of Joseph, Moses wrote, As the firstborn of his ox... Majesty is his, and his horns are the horns of the wild ox. With them he shall push the peoples. So when we come to our passage and we read about four horns, immediately we start thinking about four authorities, four powers, four forces that cannot be stopped, relatively speaking. Would you notice there's four of them? Now, that may mean that there were literally four. But if you look at four, the number four throughout Zechariah, what you find is Zechariah uses four to indicate totality. So in my world, totality is a billion. So I might be playing a game with my kids and they may accuse me of doing something awry. And I would then say to them, I would never do that in a billion years. Zechariah would say four years. Okay, same thing. Notice in Zechariah, we read of four craftsmen, four winds, four chariots, four spirits of the heavens, four horns. And the four is the where four becomes totality is the compass. The four winds, winds from the north, south, east, west. So we're not talking here about specific nations. We're talking about the totality of powers and authorities established and set up to oppose God and his people. Do you understand that? So he's talking about four horns. Now, in this text, we know that the, that the immediate application is to nations. For if you notice with me, verse 21, notice what it says. These craftsmen have come to terrify them to throw down the horns of the nations who have lifted up their horns against the land of Judah. So the text is very clear. These horns are nations, four nations to be exact. But because of four, we understand then that they're the totality. The initial four, I believe to be Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and the Edomites. But guys, that's speculation. That's massive speculation. Because if you go to any, any commentary, they're going to very quickly, uh, uh, they'll be very quick to point out church history. There have been a lot of suggestions what these four nations were. But honestly, brothers and sisters, it doesn't matter. Because what we're talking about here are not just those four, but all, the totality of all the peoples, the Antichrist forces, peoples, nations, 
who set themselves up against God and his people. That's what Zechariah's talking about right now. And then would you notice lastly that there's, um, um, well, actually, I'm not going to say uh, lastly. Having uh, said that point, God here, the second vision is addressing God's judgment against any and all who would attack, harm, or humiliate God's people. All right, that brings us then to the humiliation. So God's, God is, is going to judge anyone who would humiliate his people. Notice with me the humiliation of this text. We, we, we begin in verse 19. So I said to the angel who was speaking with me, what are these? And he answered me, these are the horns which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Now, I just referenced, Zechariah is using the word scatter. Okay, use it three times. Just these verses, three times. These guys are scattering. Now, when you hear the word scatter, you think of the exile. And so you and I, antiseptically, in our safe little environment, 2,000 or 3,000 years later, think of scattering as no big deal. Brothers and sisters, part of this word scattering carries with it the trauma, abuse, suffering. Massive suffering. You see it. For example, this word is used to translate, it's translated in various ways. Disperse, scatter, spread, or winnow. Now let me give you one example of what each of those translations should carry, should evoke in your mind when you hear the word scatter. Listen to Proverbs 20, 16. A wise king winnows. That's our word. A wise king scatters, winnows the wicked, and drives the threshing wheel over them. Now, Proverbs is talking about harvest. And in harvesting, in Judaism, there were four uh, uh, facets to it. There was reaping, where the plants were cut. There was threshing, which loosened the grain from the plant. There was winnowing, where you separated the grain from the, the chaff. And then lastly, there was sieving, sieving where you would then bring the, the grain and get all the larger particles out. And part of this process involved a thing called sledging. Okay, it sounds as it's spelled, it's spelled as it sounds, sledging. Or, as the proverb says, the threshing wheel. Threshing wheel or sledging was a heavy uh, wood, okay, either in boards or on a wheel embedded with rocks and metal. That oxen then would pull over your harvested crop. Okay, you've already reaped them, they're cut on the ground, we're going to pile them up, and we're going to have this oxen just just walk, pull this massively heavy board or wheel that's going to crush and devour. Okay, that's the connotation of the word scatter. Okay, so when you read that that these horns scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem, we think of that antiseptically and go, "Yeah, they went into exile." That is not what's being spoken about here. That is what's being spoken about, but it's much more than that. This word evol- is, is, is emotional. It's, it's shocking. It's striking. It's, it's, it's tragic. And then on top of it, would you notice uh, with me, um, verse 21, God once again repeats 19 and then adds a significant addition. Notice what he says. And I said, what are these coming to do? And he said, these are the horns which have scattered Judah so that no man lifts up his head. The latter expression is... is Vivid, speaking of total subservience. In the ancient world, in battle, when, a lar- when, a, when a, one army beat another army, the king, that army, to humiliate, all this was was humiliation, to humiliate the foreign army, would have, through, he would do it, but it would be through his soldiers, he would have that foreign army fall on the ground, and then his soldiers would put their feet on the heads of that army so they couldn't lift their heads. And it was a statement of, this is what I am to you. This is what I'll do to you again. And if I want to, I can snap my fingers and those soldiers over there will crush your heads. Okay, It's the same thing you saw in, during the, the World War II in Germany when they'd line up Jews with, sometimes they'd be loaded guns, but sometimes they'd be fake. And they'd put it to their heads and pull it and go click. And it would traumatize them. That's what was going on. So not only did they scatter them, not only did they did they abuse them and and you know basically bring them through this through this um, a, a large massive process where the where they would be ripped up and torn up, but they perp, uh, purposely humiliated them. Thus, it speaks, brothers and sisters, of the horror 
of exile. The treatment that was perpetrated against God's people in the form of forced labor, enslavement, torment, torture, maiming, rape, and murder. That's what's being described here. So God said, has this uh, vision, these four horns, these four powers, represented of all the evils that are against God's people, manifest in their day in four different nations, no doubt. Four different peoples. And he's saying, I'm going to humiliate them because they've humiliated my people. What's the humiliation? We just saw it. And brothers and sisters, understand something real quickly here. God disciplined his people. God is the one who raised up his God is the one who raised up Babylon. And the intention was to discipline the theocracy. It was not to torture or torment the people of God. That happens because we live in a fallen world. But it was not, God's plan was not, man, the nation messed up, I'm going to send people to just get my individual Christian people who love me and I love them. Wasn't that whatsoever. They went beyond. Okay. In fact, next time we're going to see um, the value that we hold to God. Would you notice with me Zechariah 2.8b? And we're going to look at this next time in brief, but notice Zechariah would say, God has sent me against the nations which plunder you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. So the first vision is a vision of comfort. You are precious to God. Do not interpret this current situation as if God's turned his back upon you because he hasn't. You are the apple of his eye. But get this, God does use wickedness to bring about his purpose. And in the process, that wickedness hurts and harms and destroys and humiliates. And when wicked does that, when, when Satan and his people do that to God's people, you've got to realize they're storing up wrath. And that's what we get to at the very end of this, the coming horror of all who oppose God and his people. Notice what we verse 20. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? Stop there for a moment. Brothers and sisters, there is a massive amount of debate as to what these craftsmen are. Are they angels? Are they people? You know, are they, what are these? And uh, I love the words of George Klein. You've got it there in your notes. Zechariah not, does not ask who these craftsmen are. A point modern interpreters should take to heart. Okay, how much wasted print has been? How much print has been wasted on trying to figure out who these these people? It's all speculation. We don't know who or what these craftsmen are. Okay, just as four is symbolic of everything, four of course would be here. The four craftsmen would also have to be somewhat symbolic. However, the term craftsman, let's define it in the Hebrew. The term uh, craftsman, harash, can refer to any kind of worker, as in an artisan. Blacksmith, carpenter, farmer, craftsman, engraver, jeweler, mason, or blacksmith. All of those are used um, to translate this word, harash. All right, so again, but, and thus the context would determine what craftsman or what, what entity is being focused on, but the context doesn't give us what it is. So once again, we're left with, I don't know. I don't know what these craftsmen are, what significance they are in the sense of angels, or or should we think of a metaphor of, of farming, or we should think of a blacksmith pounding with his hammers, you know. But this we do know from verse 20. Notice the text says, What these or what are these coming to do? Do you see that language? In Zechariah's vision, we can say this with definitiveness. Zechariah is describing not a static picture. So he's not picturing where these craftsmen are, you know, sitting there in a static motion, ready to hammer or to throw rocks, depending on your commentary, or name it. It's dynamic. He sees these craftsmen, whatever they are, in their full armor, okay? Whether that would be a blacksmith with his tools in his hands, a soldier might have two guns in his hands, guns on his hips, knives, K-bars, you know, two different... Thing, you're like coming towards the horns. The idea he sees this very dynamic picture of what is about to take place. And that's key. As we're going to return back to that. He sees in this vision not what's going on now, but what is about to take place 
regards to God and evil and wicked men. So it's dynamic. As I wrote, the language is vivid. Zechariah sees four craftsmen with tools in their hands approaching the four horns in order to devastate them. Ian de Guid wrote, The identity of the coming craftsmen is left deliberately vague. The key point is not who they are, but what they are coming to do. And what are these craftsmen coming to do? Notice with me 21, the last part. But these craftsmen have come to terrify them, to throw down the horns of the nations. Unless we understand the role of these craftsmen, it was twofold. Notice the first one, to terrify. Charad. To terrify. The word means to shake vigorously. It's the word used in Exodus 20 when, the, when Mount Sinai was shaking because of God's Shekinah glory. That's the same word. So it's, it's, it's this word that means to shake violently such that the mountain was shaking so much, God's people's hearts, if you read the text, were likewise shaking. It's a means to terrify. It's to scare the bejeebers out of people. Okay? It's to make them, it's used in the, in the, in different of the uh, historical narratives to refer to, to armies. I mean, ardent warriors, proven, strong, experienced warriors, Shaking with fear, quaking with fear at the coming wrath of God. Okay, that's this word here. It's it's a strong word. What's reminiscent to me, if you want to see the picture of it in the end times, is Revelation six fifteen. Let me go ahead and read it. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders of the rich and those strong and every slave and the free men hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, "Fall on us." and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? It's, and that day, you imagine how terrified it's going to be for the non-believer as, they, as God's Shekinah presence is coming. And they're saying, notice, they're fleeing from his presence, from his glory, from his, from his nature, who he is. Because the great day of God's wrath has come. That's the picture here. But I also want you to notice, I noted it in your, in your notes, it's in the Hiphel stem. In the Hebrew, there's different stems. And those stems are ways to communicate differently, okay? And so the Hiphel stem is a causative stem. And what that means is this. If I said, Bob saved Sally, I'd use the cow stem. But if I said, Bob caused Sally to be saved, I'd use the exact same language, but I'd use the Hiphel stem. Okay? So it's a causative. It doesn't tell you what is happening. It tells you the cause of what's going to happen. And so because of that, these craftsmen are going to cause. They're going to do what they do, provides the necessary, if you will, raw material for these nations, these Antichrist peoples, to be terrified. And that is why some commentaries wanted to link this to the work of the body of Christ. Voice does that. Right? That, that they, these don't terrorize, but they cause. They do what is necessary for people to be terrorized. And as Boyce said, the way we do that is bringing God's word and teaching and preaching and sharing God's word to the world. Because the more they hear God's word, the more they'll either repent, or on the day of judgment, they'll have more cause to be terrorized. Okay? Now, I, in a moment, you're going to see, I think that's a false, that's wrong. And there's a reason why in this text that that's wrong. But that's how he applied it. And I would certainly say that, that we certainly are going to be a part of that. If we bring God's word, if we are faithful to the Lord, we likewise are going to be agents in non-believers' terror because they heard the word of God from us on the day of judgment. You heard, where'd you hear? Well, Bob, shared the gospel on that day. And because of that sharing of the gospel, causative. That sharing of the, of the gospel was the cause now for their now terror because they didn't read. Re so I can see it. But notice the first one is it's to cause to be terrified, to be just traumatized. How? Notice the next one, yada. It's to throw down. Okay? The root literally means to throw or to cast. It's in stoning. Someone's in a pit, pick up a rock, throw it at their heads. We're stoning them. We're casting 
we are yada, we are casting rocks upon them. And uh, it's used as the opposite of what these horns did to God's people. What did, they, what did these horns do to God's people? They lifted themselves up a little. They exalted themselves to a high and lofty space. They acted like they were great when they weren't. And they abused and misused and tortured and took delight in torturing and tormenting God's people. And so God is going to come. He's a cause to torment. Do that which is necessary to torment these anti-Christ forces to throw them down. To cast them down. If you want to take the metaphor of, of us being that agent, 2 Corinthians 10 describes the role of, the, of us destroying, casting down speculations. Lofty things are assembled against the knowledge of Jesus Christ. But again, I think that's an application, not what this text is but that's what is going to happen, brothers and sisters. God is going to cause them to be thrown down through these, through these agents, through these craftsmen. Together, brothers and sisters, the picture is one of devastation. That's what you've got to see. And that's what God's people saw. Emotional, spiritual, physical. However, in this vision, the craftsmen, however we might say what they're going to do, we don't know who they are. Note this, what we can say. This vision is saying what they've yet to do. That's the key here. This is not what's going on today. You and I live in this world and bad men seem to get away with everything. Think of the Psalms. You know, when I, when I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. You know, why do these wicked people prosper and God's people are sold cheaply? Why is it that evil and wicked people seem to thrive and God's people can barely make it? Why, God? The Psalm is struggling there. And Zechariah, no doubt, was living in a time when God's people were probably thinking the same thing. We came to this back to Palestine to rebuild this temple in 538. And what happened? The local rabble immediately started to attack us. God sent this famine. God's in charge of the weather. We've been living under a famine for 17 years. We've been living with hardship and difficulty and trial, further humiliation, threats. Where's God? Why is he doing this? First uh, vision, brothers and sisters, God is your comfort. Don't, don't, don't turn your back upon God. So vision one, he is your comfort. He's the lifter of your head. He loves you. This life, this age was never intended to be permanent. God's plan for you and me is, is the next age. So everything going on in this life right now is in process, and we, God's people, sometimes are on the short end. But all that's that we might grow in love and serve God even more. But we are on the false end or the, the, the short end at times, and, and it's hard. And that brings us to, uh, to this: God, what the Peter syndrome? Okay, we all, we we boy, we have that syndrome going along in, in the church. It's always been in the church. God, what about them? Right? What about them? Peter looking at John. What about him? I'm going to be crucified upside down? What about John? Tell me how he's going to suffer. That'll make me feel better, right? What about? We want to know what about the we evil and wicked nations? What about all those peoples who are opposing God, opposing Christ, attacking God, attacking Christ's church, attacking you? What about that? And I dare say in the coming ages, the coming years, not ages, the coming years, it's going to get worse and worse and worse. I mean, we live in a little bubble in the U.S. You read the voices of the martyr. You read what's going on in the world right now against the church, against God's people. And you and I are ignorantly living in bliss. As if this is the, what everyone's living in right now. When reality, brothers and sisters, this is the short era that we've been privileged to be born in and raised in. And it's changing. If you haven't opened your eyes, look around. It's changing. It's changing fast. So what's going to happen in 10, 15, 20 years? And how will you respond to it? Well, brothers and sisters, you've got to know one thing, one thing very clear. God is not ignorant to what is going on. That's the whole point here. The first one is a word of comfort. Your glory, hope, and joy is nothing on this earth but Christ. Second vision. And this Lord will vindicate you and me. In the end, God will be vindicated. That is the point that we're seeing here. But again, would you notice, 
it's just, the picture is dynamic. It's in process. It's reminiscent of Matthew or Mark or, or Matthew three, ten, where we read of John the, the Baptist's words, and the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. That's why I, I labeled this vision the imminency of destruction of all who oppose God and His people. It's imminent. Now let's close out this time. Five or whatever minutes left that I'll spend. Let's, let's spend this time thinking about the significance of it being imminent. We talk about the second coming of Christ being imminent. What do we mean? I referenced this a couple months ago. Hopefully you all remember it. Revelation 22.20 reads, He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Well, liberals in the 1900s took that and said quickly, which means on a clock, that means like in a couple of weeks. And clearly he didn't come quickly. Therefore, the disciples got it wrong or Jesus is a liar. And you know what? The liberals were perfectly happy to have both of those be the possibility. Problem is they misunderstood what the word quickly means. The quickly doesn't mean fast as in time on a clock. It simply means imminent, which means the next motion on the clock. So if you were to go back in redemptive time, as I referenced a couple months back, you go back to Abraham's day, the end of the world couldn't occur then. God had a lot of things to do on his redemptive timetable, right? We had Abraham, we had to do the covenant of, with, with Moses and then with David and then the new covenant, which is the cross and death and resurrection, and, right? So there were all these key redemptive elements on God's time, time watch. Well, when you come to Jesus Christ's resurrection, we read in Revelation 22, and other such passages, 2.16, 3.11, that Jesus Christ is coming imminently. You know what that, that means? That means there are no more redemptive events on God's eschatological time scale except the second coming of Christ. Which means we're not looking for a temple to be rebuilt. We're not looking for a nation to be established. We're not looking for the appearance of some antichrist figure. We're not looking for the creation of one world government. And we're not looking for a war against Israel. We believe, based upon biblical teaching, the next event is the coming of Christ. Which means the eschatological time clock is at 11.59 in the evening, 59 seconds, or .59999999. The very next redemptive event is the second. That's what we mean by imminency. 1 Corinthians 15. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. Okay? In the twinkling of an eye. Twinkling of an eye in the Bible times was the time it took the light to get from the primitive eye to the cornea. Okay? That fast. When Christ comes. That's the next event. And when he comes, it is not going to be a buildup. It's not going to be, ooh, man, man, you noticed. I think he's coming back August 4th. Now, don't hold me to this too strongly. August 4th, 2024, at 9 o'clock in the morning, with three minutes to go. Better just say. Okay? And I encourage you to sell your homes and buy my stock. And, <laughs> or my book. Okay? Guys, it's not going to happen that way. We, got the, we, we live in this last era, the signs of the time, and we, we, in the next moment that God acts redemptively, and we mean uh, uh, historical redemptive. The next time he does that is the second coming of Jesus Christ. First Thessalonians 5, while, we are saying while they are saying peace and safety, then sudden destruction will come upon them suddenly, like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Brothers and sisters, what Zechariah is picturing here is an imminency of judgment. And what that therefore should evoke in your minds is this. Every non-Christian that you see, Every nation that's setting itself up against God, every person, senator, representative, president, congressman, woman, whatever, who is attacking God's people, they are doing it with the noose around their neck. Understand that. We have this idea that, God, look what they're doing. You don't, you don't care. Brothers and sisters, the craftsmen have been commissioned. The noose is around their neck. They are causing to, they're putting into place all that is necessary 
for judgment for the horns to be decimated. Which means every non-believer, we've got to stop seeing them with the eyes and see them biblically. They've got a noose around their head. They've got a cocked gun to their head. They've got a guillotine, which is just about, the lever's just about ready to be pulled, and they're living their life with that under that precarious situation. They're on the edge of a cliff, tottering, and the cliff is about ready to give way. That's where every non-believer is. And if you understand that, it changes completely the way you live in this world. For example, understanding that, brothers and sisters, leads us to waiting upon the Lord. Not taking matters in our own hands. We're waiting upon the Lord. Listen to Romans 12, 19. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but give place to, or, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Brothers and sisters, look at this vision. God is saying, I have sent the craftsmen. I'm taking care of it. You don't have to worry about, you know, when are the Persians going to get their comeuppance? When is that judge going to get his uh, comeuppance? Brothers and sisters, God is doing it right now. That's what's going on right now in our lives. Every, all of the horns that are setting themselves up against God, the craftsmen are coming. And they're doing their work to prepare and set them up for judgment. Secondly, brothers and sisters, therefore we give vengeance to God, not us. Secondly, with illumined minds, now we understand what's really going on. Let us therefore view the, the persecutor and the adversary with mercy and compassion. Listen to Job 36. Elihu's exhortation to Job. Do not long for the night. He's, been met, he's being metaphorical here. Do not long for the night when people vanish into place. That's what we do as Christians. Bad things happen and we go, I cannot wait for that congressman to get the conference. I can't wait for that terrorist. I can't wait till that shooter. I can't wait till that rapist gets their comeuppance. So it's, you're longing for the night. You're longing for judgment. When people are, are brought before God and damned, that's what we do. We're good at that. Job says, don't long for the night when people vanish in their place. Be careful. Do not turn to evil, for you have preferred this to affliction. You know what? There are Christians, I think everyone of us would rather have the non-believer be damned before he comes and rapes my family. before they come and inconvenience us in our church and our ministry, before they come and round us up and attack us. Brothers and sisters, you only say that when you don't see their imminent judgment. Do you understand hell is eternity? The lake of fire is not a moment. It's eternity. And you're dealing with people who are on the precipice. God's making sure of that with the forecast. What are they? We don't know. So don't long for the night when these people die. That would be evil, as the text says, yet you have preferred this to affliction. Brothers and sisters, this is why in church history, if you look at the martyrs in church history, when they were coming up to be martyred, you know what? Rarely did they beg in weakness. Most of them never begged. They never, oh, please, 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 no, no. They didn't beg. You know what they did instead? They looked at the person about ready to kill them and say, I forgive you. I'll pray for you before I die. Why? Because they knew when I die, brothers and sisters, what can an evil man do to you and me? They, can't, they can touch the body, but they can't destroy the soul. Matthew 10. Do not fear him who destroys the body, but is unable to kill the soul. Fear him, God, who is able to destroy both soul and body. Man, I reverence God. Therefore, when I die, it's not a big deal. I get to be with Jesus. But when they die, it's done. It's eternal. It's forever. So brothers and sisters, we need to look upon all that's going on in this world right now and that the frustration we've had this past year with some of the things that are, the harebrained ideas and statements made that have impacted negatively God's people and God's church. Not just in the U.S., worldwide. And stop going, man, God, bring the fire and brimstone on. Zachariah is very clear. He wants, God wants his people in this state to be filled with comfort from the Lord 
and this meekness that enables them to pray for the adversary in the midst of the fire. Because, brothers and sisters, we see reality. Judgment is coming. It, it, is, it is right here. Everyone is, is just a heartbeat away from that moment where they will be before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords before they're cast into the lake of fire. So may we as God's people with triumph and with glory be those people who can be beaten. Think of Smyrna. I'm, I'm done here. With you know, Smyrna, the chief export of, of Smyrna, the, the city of Smyrna was myrrh, and that's the persecuted church of Revelation. The more you beat it, the better we smell. Why? Because the more you beat us, the more we realize unlet goods and cancers grow. This moral life also. The body, let him kill it. His truth abides still. And we shall reign forever with him. Let's pray for those people. Let's not damn Let's pray. Father, what a delight it is to see this second vision. And Lord, to be, I hope, by your spirit, encouraged and built up and inspired Father, to take our focus off of what we individually might gain or lose and to put it on to your kingdom, your glory, what you're doing in this world and what you, therefore, Lord, your purpose for placing us right where we are to be that blessing, that myrrh that smells so sweet to the world. Lord, we know that we are part of the triumph of Christ. We are the aroma of Christ. To some, it's the aroma of life. We know to others it will be the aroma of death. Grant us the grace, O Lord, regardless of what the impact of our ministry, of our prayer, of our witness to this world. Grant us grace to be faithful, to let you be God, and know that you got this. You're taking care of it. You don't have to worry about vengeance. Lord, we need simply to be a part of giving the face and affections of Jesus Christ to this lost and dying world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's go to